Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn. Delighted to be joined on the podcast today by Barra Rowntree, who is a research officer with the Economic Social Research Institute, the ESRI, which many of you will have heard of. Um, and Barra was involved in co-authoring a report which got a lot of headlines this week before um, the British Conservative Party decided to intervene and eventually uh, get rid of um, the uh, great Dundering uh, Johnson. But anyway, Barra is an economist whose work is on taxation, welfare and pensions. He joined the ESRI in 2018 after completing a PhD at University College London. And he previously worked as an economist at the Institute for Fiscal Studies in London. Um, Barra, thanks so much for coming on Reboot Republic today. No, thanks for having me on, Rui. So, Barra, listen, we might as well go straight into the, the report that got the headlines. Um, it's something that I've been highlighting for many years, and I know you and the SRI as well have been doing a lot of research around this, which has been the shifting, um, I suppose, in many ways. <laughs> I called it in my book in 2020, housing shock, a structural shock to our housing system in terms of the collapse of home ownership, and particularly amongst younger generations. Um, maybe you could kind of take us through I suppose, first, the headline findings, you know, a lot of our listeners would be aware of that. You know, a lot of them are in the situation um, of, you know, being stuck renting or stuck living at home in parents' box rooms, late 20s, 30s, even 40s. Um, Maybe some of the headline figures in terms of that fall in home ownership rates amongst the different groups. Sure. So I suppose what what we highlighted in previous work was that what you've seen across generations is a very rapid decline in home ownership rates. So, you know, from quite a high level, right? So in Ireland, yeah. we've historically had a very high rate of home ownership. We can go into some of the reasons for that later on. But yeah. what we have seen then across recent decades is is a reduction in that, and but very much affecting those younger cohorts coming in. So we've seen home ownership rate at age 30, say, collapse from about 60% for those born in the 1960s to about 30% for those born in the 1980s. So a halving of the home ownership rate by age 30. And now, you know, we, we, we remains to, see, uh, to be seen where that goes for people born in the 1980s um, over the next few years. But typically, home ownership rates for previous generations have kind of leveled off at around age 40, 45, because it's very hard to get a mortgage after yeah. to cover kind of, you know, the, the and, and to cover those repayments. But so what this research then was trying to do was say, well, what does implications of that have for income adequacy in retirement? Because typically, when we look at those who are retired, they actually face lower rates of um, you know, income poverty than the general population. Um, yeah. so that's typically defined as you know living in a household with less than sixty percent of the median or middle uh, income. That's kind of the, the the typical working definition of poverty. And again, those rates are lower for those. Um, uh, who who are retired, and they're also they tend to you know fa- to 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 face not particularly high rates of deprivation either. So the uh, but but that kind of then goes into well they have these additional resources available because they've typically paid off their housing costs and they don't have housing costs the vast majority. So ninety percent of current retirees are homeowners, and those who aren't are pretty much all in social housing. There's very few private renters uh, amongst those who are currently retired. There's there's a few, and th- those those that are there face you know, significant hardship. They're really the group of of the retirees who do face difficulties, but yeah. it, it, that that isn't really the case for for those retirees. So what what we, what we did in this paper then was to say, well, what does it look like? Home ownership rates will 
uh, end out at for for future generations um based on kind of current trends based on their earnings based on earnings growth based on you know all those kind of factors trying to take that into account and and then what implications they'll have for income adequacy and the, the findings are quite stark so we we kind of estimate that really you know that those who are currently kind of in the tw- uh, the, the the 35 to 45 group their homeownership rate is just under 60% at the moment, and our modelling suggests that this is, you know, likely to reach about 65%, but with additional support could maybe get to 70%, but that yeah. looks like kind of the, the the most, which is significantly, again, lower than than for the group who are currently retired, again, about 90%. And and that then has big implications, so we, we then do an exercise kind of looking, well, what would that do to the income poverty rate? And we could find it could be as much as in a, in a low scenario to double the income poverty rate in retirement uh, for future cohorts. And so, so again, it was maybe just kind of formalizing a little bit or putting a bit of um, quantification onto something I think that we're all aware of, which is that we have, a, I suppose, a, social, a, a state which is kind of very much predicated on or, or, or assumes that you will have a house or that the vast majority of people will own their own home and not have outgoings on that home in, in retirement. And, and that's looking like a less sure assumption. Uh, and then that raises then questions about, well, how do how do we address that? What, what do do we need to change the way that our housing support system looks like for those yeah. who don't become homeowners? Do we need to change the way that the, the social welfare system works? And so there's a whole big load of questions related to that. And that really the, the aim of the research, I suppose, was to start getting us uh, and policymakers thinking about that early, because you know that that it's a huge big challenge. But we do have a lot of time, at least, to 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 change things um, uh, and and to and to you know decide where it is that we want to go and how we get there. Yeah, it's. You know, I've been looking at this from many different angles and, you know, there's there's so much in terms of it. Like, I think, you know, you're looking at one angle in terms of pensions and income adequacy when people retire. The other angle, of course, is that we're seeing, um, you know, impact on, for example, family formation. You know, that's the the age group category, you know, people in their 30s, early 40s who would be having children and with lower rates of home ownership. And given that, in Ireland, the private rental sector is insecure. People don't feel secure enough to have families. Now, I don't know. I don't think there's been any research yet on looking at impact on family formation of the decline in home ownership. Um, maybe that's a future project for you. But um, that's something that I've I've definitely uh, people have been telling me in terms of that. Mm. That's been the reality. And um, the other thing, though, you, you say there in relation to this is something we have time about. But I was looking at some of the figures in the report and you were showing that already, if you look at the 55 to 65 category, there's already, I think, was the figure a 10% fall in home ownership amongst that group? Yeah, so, so it is going, it's going to be lower. And so you're right that there is, so this issue is starting to emerge and starting to get bigger. But I suppose in terms of those really large mm. um, shares of, of lower, uh, of, of reduced home ownership, we do have time to address that. For, for, the, for those people, as you say, that are, Kind of in their in their fifties now approaching. So each if if you look at each successive generation since like the nineteen sixties, it's been about five or ten percentage points lower home ownership by age forty five fifty yeah. um, across each generation. But then it really leaps down as over the those born in the seventies and and the eighties. That's where you see the biggest reductions. So there's been there has been kind of a steady decline. And there, there's a question, you know, like we again we we are coming from a very high base in terms of home ownership rates. And that's due to a particular set of circumstances, I suppose, about how 
really the Irish welfare state operated through yeah. the 20th century, right? And, and Michelle yeah. Norris puts forward this very, I think, interesting and convincing argument that really the focus of the Irish welfare state wasn't on education, wasn't on health, wasn't on yeah. you know welfare payments. It was about asset transfers, and it's start you know starting from back at the land acts, and that that really you know, because then you you gave land to to some people to farm, then you had to help the agricultural labourers, and because you helped the agricultural labourers, you ended up giving housing to urban, and you know, that was very much what the state was focused on in those early years. And that led to these very high rates of home ownership. And like, you know, right through, you know, along with the policies that followed in terms of, you know, very subsidized, more highly subsidized mortgages. Mm. Um, and then also the transfer of, of, of homes to, to, to huge numbers of people. And so I think that, you through know, through social housing, yes, through, through, so, yeah, well, social housing, through the yeah. self, <clears throat> exactly. And so, so, you know, I think there's a question about, well, if that was how we reached that extremely high level of home ownership, yeah, how attainable is that into the future? Because yeah. you know that that that's something that fine we we couldn't could do when the Irish population was maybe a lot smaller and wasn't growing as as fast as it is, and you know yeah, a lot of that housing was in you know quite low density in what was greenfield areas. But if we're if if, if how do we combine if that is our aim objectives like that with some of the objectives around, you know, densification and um, addressing some of those climate change targets that we have. There's, I think there's a bit of a tension there of like the way that we previously reached such high levels of home ownership. Is that compatible with other policy objectives and the size of Ireland as it is and the, 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 suppose the settlement patterns of Ireland that it is. Um, that, no, that's not just, that's not to say that, you know, we should just accept what, what is, what's the, the case yeah. for those future generations. But, you know, may, maybe it isn't as feasible to, to have, Ninety percent rates of home ownership into retirement. That that's very again. That is quite high by yeah. international standards. And then so th- then there's the question of you. Well, okay, if we're not going to have as high rates of home ownership, really, then the question. And and I think for me and a lot of the stuff we've done on housing, we're kind of pointing at this. Really, the question is well, how how do we have a more functional rental sector? Because yeah. that really is where all the affordability issues are. Like for for all that we talk about, you know, house prices being very high for those who can afford to buy them, um, their actual payments, uh, you know, relative to their incomes, end up very reasonable and, yeah, and the, much the lower. Mortgage right. payment is cheaper than yeah. renting. Exactly. And and particularly yeah. if you account for the fact that a chunk of that mortgage payment is ultimately savings, right? It's not yes. it's not really like your your real kind of housing cost if you're if you're got a mortgage and on a house is the mortgage interest plus whatever the insurance component is and all those bits and pieces. But it's not the the capital repayment is really some savings. And and so, you know, it re- really where the affordability issues are is in the private rental sector. And that's a sector which has been growing over time. Um, and but but there, there always has been these issues with the private rental sector. I suppose like if you go back, there is ESRI research from the late eighties through the nineties and the early two thousands, pointing out like in the private rental sector there is a large chunk of people who face very unaffordable housing costs. Yeah. So this has this has always been the case. Yeah. But now it, I suppose it's spreading further up the distribution in terms of there's um, you know there, there's a larger share of those in the private rental sector for whom rents are unaffordable. Um, and there's also a larger share of the population who are renting. So it used to be a tiny share. And for much longer time now. Is exactly, the, is and for much longer. Potentially for life. Yeah. And, and so, then, so then that raises the question, both like, okay, well, how, how do we want to deal with that? And, you know, w- w- one of the ways is that, well, particularly, particularly and, and, and the interaction with retirement, the interesting thing there as well, you know, that, that's where you really don't want to have high levels of housing costs, or it's not really sustainable to have high levels of housing costs into retirement because your income generally comes down. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, that, that, that they're a group for, well, how do we want to be supporting them? It's probably not the private rental sector that you want those who aren't homeowners to be in. It's probably much more about 
traditional social housing, be it local authority or AHB, approved housing body, or also yeah. cost rental, right? There's cost rental particularly I think has a, a quite a big role to play in this in the longer term kind of as well as addressing the housing problems because if you're building that housing and you know the 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 the, co- the the rents are tied to costs and the costs are determined today and incomes continue to grow then you know 20 30 years into the future that cost should be relatively small compared to income I, and and so that's why it offers I suppose quite an attractive long term solution yes but for um, and and for many of those who, who, who in retirement then that hopefully that that you know that housing cost will be quite small even of their you know pension income so so that I suppose that that that's one of the means in which you can look to address it but there are also probably you know there's also going to be some who who probably you know for whatever reasons of circumstance and and how their lives kind of pan out in life events maybe you know later in life in their fifties or sixties mean that they might end up renting so you need to then I think look at and have a residual and kind of a much smaller element of housing supports and kind of re, 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 you know a restructured um, what spit scheme of housing supports because that that's that's something and we we published research on a few weeks ago just looking at at how we do housing supports in Ireland and it, it's you know for for those who get into the social housing system it actually does a lot to to mitigate their housing costs their housing costs are low both in absolute terms and relative to their incomes yeah um, and, and but but then there's lots of low income private renters who don't get any support um, and so there's, I think, and they're the group who you would really be worried about, and would, you know, for talk, in the context of retirement, be worried about them in retirement as well. Yeah, I but saw then, that figure from the CSO, which was that um, a third, thir- well, close to a third, thirty percent of renters who receive no state support at all are in poverty after paying their, are at risk of poverty, mm-hmm. um, after paying their housing costs. So that's a very significant proportion. Yeah, yeah, and, and so there, there's some tricky issues with with how to measure that, and the, and the CSO will we'll have some estimates out on that, hopefully after, later in summer, which hopefully uh, will address some of the problems with, with those CSO estimates. Essentially, the CSO compare incomes after housing costs to the same benchmark before, so it's kind of a techie thing that the, we won't get. Won't, won't, maybe it won't be a particular interest to many, but but the the point is true, right? The the, the exact level is 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 maybe a little bit unsure, but the yeah. point is true that. Those who are renting, who are on low incomes, can end up facing some very unaffordable housing costs and higher rates of deprivation, higher rates of poverty. And we don't really have a system at the moment that provides support to them. And so, you know, in, in, there's maybe a difference in how you want to see the, the solution short term and long run. Yeah. In the in the short run, one of the things that again our, our research showed a few weeks ago is that one of the things that are squeezing this group is the fact that the income limits on eligibility for social housing supports, um, which include things like HAP. They've been frozen since 2011, and so the share mm-hmm. of the population who is covered has been kind of squeezed gradually over time, and so fewer people are qualifying for that. But then also, as I'm sure anyone and any of your listeners who've tried looking for a rental property recently will know, that the limits on what you can rent a property for under those supports have been frozen since 2017. Yeah, and that particularly for single adults. Yeah, just means that there's they you cannot find somewhere. Um, you know, it, it, so we, we we looked at across the the you know. Properties registered with the RTB, and some areas of Dublin, is less than two percent of you know one bedroom properties would fall under the limit. And we know there's a lot of single adults in, particularly in Dublin, Cork, Galway cities, looking for accommodation, and they will not be able to find it. Uh, that that's covered by the rental support. So I suppose again, in the short run, there's even though it's probably not the best means of um, providing housing supports, I think I think there is a, a role for HAP to play in the short run of helping to mitigate. The, the very high housing costs for those in the private rental sector, which again is that's that's the group that are suffering these 
worst. But then in the longer run, there's clearly a need to, to move away from that and, and much more of a, a role for um, traditional social housing, but also then, uh, uh, um, you know, cost rental, new approaches like that. Um, and uh, you know, it also what you're saying there in terms of that need for something like cost rental, that public housing that's affordable rental, mm. firstly, and also the affordable purchase as well, done th- both of those. The question is, you know, are we doing even sufficiently as what's set out in housing for all? And I, I know that's a policy area, but what I suppose what your research is raising is that there is a, probably an even greater long term need mm. for that expansive public forms of housing provision. Yeah, no, and I think, I think that's that's been the clear message from lots of ESRI research over the past decade, I suppose, has been really yeah. pointing that, look, the, 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 there is the private rental sector does create some very difficult affordability issues for many, many people. And there's, I suppose, you know, there, 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 there needs to be uh, really a, a, a huge change in, 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 in how we provide housing supports for, for this group. Again, we've been reliant on rent supplement, I suppose, and HAP for many, many years. So, you know, even, I think, 2011, there was about 90,000 people claiming rent supplement. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's not it's not like HAP is, I suppose, a, a, a new, brand new no, approach. No. It, it, it's a continuation. Of, but And in many ways, it's better than rent supplement what went before. You know, rent supplement, you couldn't work more than 30 hours a week while while getting it. So, in, in some ways, HAP improves and things, but it's kind of a continuation of what went before. But really, yeah, into the longer run, there is a quite a clear need for a much larger share of housing to be social in that encompassing way. So, you know, a combination of local authority, AHB, and then also cost rental. Um, that, you know, there's, that clearly needs to be much, there's a much greater role needed for that. But that's going to take time to achieve, I suppose. That, that's the, the difficulty. And then we're in, we're in a situation now where there's very clearly large number of people who are facing very great difficulties with affordability. And, and so, again, you ha- yes, well, you have to have a, a, a short run and a long run uh, kind of solution there you, you know if, if we were to just leave it till we provided sufficient amounts of social local authority ahb cost rental housing that would be a long long time right and and, and so so there needs to be kind of i suppose a, a dual dual prong approach to having at least some kind of subsidization of um private rents in, 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 as, as we bridge that gap and and does it even you know beg the further question then so you have you know the medium you know, and again, we could. I, I would argue with the government in terms of scale and and speed at the moment that there is more could be done. But anyway, let's take it at, at that that we agree that you know there's this need for a significant ramping up of of public provision, as you say. That's anyway, it, it's medium term, or you know, well, anyway, we I think there's there's ways it, it'll be achieved. I, I think I think it's more likely to be achieved in the medium to long term. I, I, yes. I, yeah, in terms is. of yeah, it's not going to solve people in the next you know five exactly. years or yeah. even year or six months who are in yes. rental crisis. Um, the question then you say a subsidy HAP is there and you know that does provide a support for people, but there is issues around you know massive issues with security of tenure mm-hmm. around it and and as you raised in, in your report and I've done my own research issues of discrimination and exclusion as well of of HAP recipients within the private rental sector, but then it also raises the question I think of of rent limitations and rent you know controls and you know rent reductions and how do we make rents at the market actually more mm. affordable have you looked at that so i i haven't some of my colleagues have done stuff that they, they um so connor tool and rachel slaymaker kind of do, do a lot of research on housing and it's on the ESRI website for anyone who's interested but they, they, they've looked for example at the, the rent pressure zones and i think their conclusion is that there is there is a role for it 
um, mm. for those kind of things, but that there are risks that go alongside it. And we've we've seen you know we've seen this in Ireland, but also internationally in the past that if you end up having you know very widespread or very kind of strong rent controls, what that can lead to is, I suppose, landlords pushing those units out of the rental sector. Yeah. Um, and then you know, we, we again, we, I think people anecdotally hear it, and there's there's some suggestive evidence of it happening here of, you know, landlords convert, you know, doing conversions to some of the RPZ controlled properties, so to properties in in the rental sector in rent pressure zones, um, doing some renovations that mean that they can then lift up the the yeah. the rent, or indeed just get, you know selling off the the asset and uh, for, for for them and that well, we stuff being taken out of the things like short term tourist accommodation as well. Sure. Yeah, and, and and so so from that point of view, you know, there's certainly there, there there is a role for rent for rent controls, but they do come with them, particularly in the longer run, some I suppose unintended or undesirable consequences. So it's you know there, there is a degree to which they're part of I suppose the policy toolkit, but they 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 probably shouldn't be to the forefront because fundamentally, particularly uh, I, I suppose in 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 that kind of like medium to long run, we also need we just need a lot more supply, right? And particularly supply of cost cost rental of AHB of local authority housing, but we just need we we need a lot more supply of housing in general. So you know the the estimates that's usually kind of talked about is you know thirty thousand houses a year, but that essentially seems to be predicated on you know a, a relatively steady headship rate, which is the number of people per house. And mm. in Ireland, that's relatively high um, at the moment. Um, we have, you know, tended to have, you know, you can kind of intuitively want to think about that. It's, you know, a bunch of students sharing a, a, a house together rather than each living in their own, say, one bed or two bed um, yeah. kind of accommodation, right? If that headship rate is to come down towards European levels, there's research from the Central Bank, Ronan Lyons as well, that suggests that actually more of what we need is it's nearer to 50,000 plus units a year. Right, so yeah. so just the, the scale of what we need, and have needed over the past decade, and haven't achieved, so therefore need to make back up, is just massive. Um, and, and and I think that kind of came out in, again in this in the census figures. Right, we saw that in lots of areas there had been an increase in the housing stock, but the population had gone faster, and we weren't we were starting from a position whereby we already didn't have enough in many of these areas houses per people. So so the just the scale of what is needs to be done is so huge. And, uh, and and like you know, we're we're not near getting where there yet. But think you know, the number of completions is increasing, but it's still well below where it needs to be, and it needs to be where it needs to be for a sustained period of time if we're going to ultimately have kind of a functioning housing market, I suppose. And and, and on that, the the issue of how much do you see? It's something that you know that. The evidence is across the world, and you know I've pointed it out here as well in terms of what's called the increased financialization of housing. You know that increased commodification of housing, the treatment of housing not as an individual asset, as you know it's someone's you know home, but actually as an investment asset, like a property mm-hmm. investment. That you know you referred to earlier the the years of you know the 1960s, 70s, 80s when we got to high levels of home ownership. There wasn't that financialization of housing, commodification of housing. Mm. The primary purchaser in the market was pretty much homeowners, full stop. Whereas now you have, in terms of the provision of supply, because I'm even thinking of the rental mm. and you know the increased commencements, the increased supply, a significant proportion now of that, particularly in the Dublin region, is apartments which are built to rent, very high you know rents. Um, 
And you also have, you know, the ongoing purchase of property as an investment, not as a home, that that is a further challenge in terms of trying to provide affordable housing and a market that, you know, where rents aren't constantly rising. Yeah. So there's a few things. There. So maybe, maybe just to pick up on kind of like the role of maybe the, the bill to rent and, and, mm. and those. So what the way, way I would kind of look at that is that really where, where, where that properties being provided, they're not affordable for the vast majority of people, right? Mm. But there is a group for whom they are and for whom they're attractive. And if that isn't there, I suppose my, the way I would look at it is that the risk is that those people shift further down the market, as it were. They, they, they start looking at the properties that are affordable for other people. And because they can pay more, they bid up the, the price of housing in those areas. So I think there is a role for, for that kind of build to rent and, and investor-led housing in just provide, you know, ensuring that there is housing there for particularly lots of say that the staff coming in with the tech companies and, and the like that mm. that there is a role for that because if, if that's not there and what we what evidence does show from elsewhere is that that kind of tends to divert those people from other sources of housing right so so it, it's not directly affecting the affordability but if it wasn't there things would be even worse would be the way I I, I kind of see that right but but in terms of the financialization of housing I think that's an interesting kind of general point, right? Because it's something we've seen around the world. And certainly it happened in Ireland, right? You know, mortgages weren't really a big thing until, particularly for the uh, the, the banking sector, until the late 80s, right? It was, yeah, yeah. Know, where, and even mortgages wasn't, wasn't that big. It was mostly building societies and even building societies had a, a much, you know, the, 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 the share, I suppose, of, of, of people who could expect to get a mortgage was much smaller back then as well, right? So, but we had this real um, liberalization, if you like, of, 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 the financial sector and its involvement in housing back then, yeah. and, and that has, uh, I think, contributed to some of this, uh, the, the trends in house price we've seen. But but so too does say the tax treatment, right? We we got rid of rates back in the nineteen seventies, and you know that that you know that that domestic rates, I should say, that so that was you know the the, the equivalent to local property tax back in the days, and that we had what a 30, 30 40 year period where there's no local property tax. Um, that's something which can kind of dampen a bit of the the the. the um, price volatility. We also have, I mean, in, in terms of if you think about most individuals, the largest asset that most people will buy is their house. And we effectively have made any of the capital gains you get on housing completely tax-free, right? Because there's a principal private residence relief for capital gains tax. So I, I, think, I think you're right. I think there's a, there is a role that financialization has played, but I think it's even more, it's even more widespread than, and I, I think we shouldn't necessarily focus on just institutional investors, because that's a relatively small bit of the market. Rather, like for most people, the the way that we treat housing in terms of being, it being an asset makes it for most people a very tax advantage asset. And no surprise, people want to pile their money into it where they where they have that money. And so that ends up, I think, driving some of the 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 the, the price dynamics that we see as well, right? That, yes. that particularly yeah. when when you know if 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 you can see if, if people think there's going to be capital gains on the horizon, if if they buy a house and then they get a you know, ten hundred grand gain on that house, and then they can sell it off tax free, move into another house, and that that, that that's kind of encouraged by the the way that we treat and the way that we tax property. So, it, I, I think you're right. I think there is a role for financialization, but I think it's kind of even wider than yeah. the bit that we maybe typically focus on. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think that's um, the well, the bit that you're right on, <laughs> the bit that I agree on <laughs> is the, is the the way in which not institutional investors, but ordinary people across the country who have money treat housing as a property investment yeah. and engage in all sorts of practices. And you're right, the tax treatment of, of property facilitates that. And we do have, you know, the issues of, you know, flipping property. You know, we know people are currently buying property within the market to, 
rented out or, you know, they're not purchasing it as a home. So that that is a real issue. On the institutional investors, I do disagree. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the idea, first of all, you could argue at some level, yes, at a niche role, they might have a role in that. But I think their dominance in the market now, they actually are very, very dominant, particularly in Dublin, the Dublin region. When you're looking at, um, you know, engaging in the purchase of thousands of units the, and the building and the supply argument Again, similarly, I would think that you know this argument that, well, if they weren't there, you know, things would be worse. Well, I don't agree because I think if they weren't there, you wouldn't have the pressure on land prices. You also wouldn't have the same pressure on, and you could argue, well, someone else would just come in. Well, I don't know. If we had a less financialized housing market where you had a much greater role of affordable housing providers and even provision of housing for sale for homeowners, that would, I think, be a better system than this model that has been pursued. And I've argued with policymakers since they started this back in 2012, 2013, that this was the wrong approach, or you know, this was an approach that was going to lead us down this road. Because the investor funds don't just want a small proportion of the market. They want a very large and growing proportion of it. They don't want you know, rising rates of home ownership or affordable housing. And the other issue is the rents they set do bring market rents up. You know, they're setting because market rents are set, you know, they ought to be. It's like, oh, you look at three properties in an area that sets the rent. If you have these new properties at the really high end, that allows other landlords then raise the rents to that market rent. So I, I to, to come back. So, so you kind of seem to say, well, you know, the onset of this phenomenon was kind of like 2012 or so. Right. But before yeah. that, we had a different class of investor. Right. We, we did. We, yeah, we said yeah. what, what, what the state actually encouraged. Yeah, by let's and you know, so we we've done some research where you know we we looked at if you look back in the eighties, very few people report having rental income, right? It's just it's not a thing. Yeah, there, there's not a large landlord sector. Yeah, um, but if you look then in twenty seventeen or so, about a quarter of households in the top tenth, I think it is, of the income distribution mm. report getting rental income, right? Yeah. And and that was because what portion did you say there? A quarter. A quarter of the top ten percent report rental income, right? So the, 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 wow. this is, wow. so, so the, but ju- just to give you a sense of the scale, so what we yeah. did over the 2000s primarily, the early yeah, 2000s, the, the 2000s yeah. was to incentivize again through lots of yeah. um, tax. I, I actually was looking at these figures for the years 2003, 2007, the lending by banks for buy to lets went from 10 billion to 50 billion. Mm, exactly. And, and, and it was actually the last three or four years yeah. of the Celtic Tiger that that real expansion happened. And, and I suppose there, there's a link then to the, it was a very clear thing to the financial crisis there, right? That the, yeah. those banks were bar- borrowing on the international markets and then lending to Irish households mm. to overextend themselves to become landlords. And that was kind of the model of housing we had. And so I think the move towards the more institutional investors was more actually about trying to de-risk, the, de-risk it from a macro perspective for Ireland. Yes. Right? It, was, it was about trying to say, well, we don't want our banks to be borrowing in the international markets and lending to Irish households who are then exposed when... It, when and if things go belly up, rather it's better that there's some sharing of that risk, right? And that we want Canadian pension funds or whatever ultimately to be holding this. So I, th- I think that there is a, I think there's an argument for that, right? In in, in that, and, and again, what, what you're talking about is about the financialization, again, I think goes back longer and broader than, than is maybe some of the current debate kind of paints it. Mm. So again, we, you can argue about the relative role of this in, in terms of the, the bill to rent, right? In, in terms of at that level at that moment, I, I don't think it's actually that large of the overall market, but really, the, I suppose what what 
I, I think would be the ideal state is that we have a much we have you know we have fifty thousand units being provided a year exactly. and built to rent yes. around the level it is at the moment or something like that, right? Yeah, where it's but, completely disproportionate within the market at the moment in terms of the supply and the new supply, which brings it, us on to the question of affordable housing mm-hmm. and affordable housing for purchase. Mm. And how do we do you think or have you I don't know have you looked at you know how do we significantly increase you know home ownership because clearly it's too low and we want and of course the type of of course the type of home ownership matters you don't want a massively heavily indebted form mm-hmm. of home ownership which it then leads us to a situation of mortgage arrears down the line you want a more affordable have you thought about ways in which we can increase that or is the ways we can do that so, so I suppose for first the question is well how what is the level that we want right and I, I suppose in one sense you could think about well the state could be tenure neutral if there was a more functional private rental sector, yeah. right? So, so the, the the level of home ownership that you ideally want to target probably depends on how functional the rental sector is and whether mm. you can make that afford, affordable. But so, so I'm, I'm not sure there's like an optimal or a, a, you know a, a clear level of home ownership we should be targeting. It probably depends a bit also on one's views about if you think there's other benefits of home ownership that you might want to encourage, right? But but yeah. so so it, it's not clear what the ideal level is. But if one did want to increase it, you know, some some of the I think some of it does come back to, and this isn't the only one or even the dominating factor. But for me, one of the clear role uh, roles for policy is in the taxation of land and housing. Yeah. So uh, it being it being able to because because uh, some uh, you know you could at least address some, and I don't think it's by any means all or and the only thing. But some of the costs and some of the volatility in those costs of the housing come from the fact that we have you know uh, uh, land valuations which very phenomenally and we, we have you know we we can end up having again those those capital gains which aren't taxed potentially when, when they're realized but also our, our taxation of land more generally right we have a local property tax system then we have a rates business rate system which makes no sense at all it, it only applies to you know certain commercial premises it doesn't apply to land more generally mm. and so there you know if you were to look at a, a more widespread reform to that I think you, you I think you could reform uh, business rates in such a way that it encouraged actually more land near urban areas to be put on the market, and and that kind of can help what you're talking about, in, in, in that it can encourage the, the the land which is near cities, near towns, yeah, to yeah. be put on the market, and and that can kind of help, right? And so so there's role for taxation in shifting mm. that, but it's it's not the only thing. Like it, it, there, I'm sure there's others who have better and thought more widely about yeah. this, but for me, just, there is a role there. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a very important point, the, the question of land and, and the availability of land, and it's something that NESC have done a huge amount as well on. Um, have you a view on the proposed, uh, or well, the, the change in terms of the land value tax or um, the new land? The, the new zone land tax, yeah. yeah so, zone so, land so, tax, the, the, yeah. so the, the, I think, there, yeah, there's, there's a role for something like that, right? So the we, we, we wrote about when it was announced in the budget last year, we kind of pointed out that the current definition that it seems to be working on could end up creating some perverse incentives to, well, for councils not to rezone land, but also for for landowners not to try have their site serviced, right? Because it only applies to serviced zoned land. So, so that they could end up having a bit of a weird incentive. Do you mean, incentive. I actually remember reading that at the time. Um, your analysis, you were saying that essentially, if a council, it would disincentivize a council from zoning land. Because then they would have to pay the tax. No, so 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 more so that 
do you, by putting in place the, the zone land tax as currently structured, do you end up putting political pressure on councils for people coming and saying, oh, no, don't zone my land. I don't want my land zoned. Yes. Is there a risk that we end yes. up zoning less land than we yeah. might like to? So I think that, yeah. no, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to make too big an issue of that. But I yeah, think that's, yeah, you yeah. Can just, you know, that's on the margin. That looks like it, it could be a mm. bit of an issue. But, but, but in general, the idea of a zone land tax or something like that does make sense. I, I would think that it doesn't really go wide enough and that it only applies to, to the zone serviced land, right? And so really we want to be thinking about something broader than that. We like land is something that is um you know, it it, it it's it's not particularly elastic. There is a fixed amount of land yeah. and it varies in quality, but it's there, right? And so from an economics perspective, it's location around urban centres where we want well, to be developing. Well, precisely, and, yeah, yeah, and 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 it has very little to do. You know, if if I own that land, its value has very little to do with what I've done to it. Just yeah. just the land component, the premises on it might, but that but the land component of it has mm. very little to do. It, it it's just there. It's fixed supply, and from that point of view, there is a very strong economic case for taxing that more heavily, right? Because ultimately, it can't respond. It, it's one, and so this is why you tend to kind of economists saying that well, property and land taxes are the le- least damaging forms of taxation. And so, so actually, that, you know, that kind of can feed into a wider thing of if there's a, you know, if we're looking at um, a need for more revenue in the years ahead to finance the, the levels of state expenditure that people seem to say that they want, and we're going to see more tax revenues, then, there, you know, land and property seem to be one place in which both we could get more revenue, but also then might, if designed correctly, have also some positive effects in terms of the, they're addressing the housing market. Yeah. Barry, listen, I could talk to you all day. Um, <laughs> there's lots. We'll have to get you back. I know I had asked you one thing before we finish mm. up, the cost of living, because the cost of living connects with this does. Um, directly when you think in terms of rents and affordability and housing affordability, direct links. Um, and it, it frustrates me. When I hear, you know, government going, oh, I can't do anything about cost of living. I go, well, if you bloody kept rents down over and more affordable housing over the last couple of years, we'd be in a hell of a lot better place than we are now. But we are where we are at the moment. Um, in terms of your analysis, you were looking at the, um, the particularly energy costs and mm-hmm. cost of living. And I was actually also thinking the other issue, you know, how this is impacting on inequality. Um, because, of course, the thing we didn't mention around home ownership is that also will mm-hmm. exacerbate inequality intergenerational and of course social class inequality in terms of wealth ownership um as home ownerships decline home ownership levels declines but in terms of your research maybe you could bring us through some of that just around the cost of living um, yeah sure so, so, so we, we've done some work recently just looking at energy poverty and, and the recent energy price rise because they, they really are stark right we, we like yeah. energy energy prices were fluctuated a little bit over the last few years but we haven't seen anything like this for decades um so you know we've had like almost a 40 percent probably above that at this stage, increase in electricity prices since January last year. Um, it's even more if you look at liquid fuels, much more. Um, gas has gone up by that as well. So, But again, what we know is that lower income households tend to spend a much larger share of their overall consumption on energy products, right? Just yeah. It makes up a larger share. And that, that's also true in terms of, I suppose, housing costs, right? So, And, then you yeah. can, and as a result... If you look at the increases in these prices, right, you're, if, if you just look at those increases from January last year to, to April or so this year, what you're talking about is just looking at home heating fuels is about 3.5% of their net income after tax and welfare income being kind of eaten up by those price increases for yeah. the lowest income tenth. And that compares to about 1.5% for the, the highest income, uh, sorry, fifth, I should say, and then for about 1.5% for the highest income fifth. So there's this, this strong gradient, there's this real, I suppose, disproportionate impact of these price increases on lower income households. And then it also, in terms of 
you know, energy poverty can look and think about it in different ways, but a measure the government previously used is spending more than 10% of your net income on, on energy services. And so if you look at that, in 2015-16, the energy poverty rate was about 13% um, on that definition. We estimate that now, accounting for just those price increases that we saw through to uh, April, um, it's about 29%, right? And, and likely to go even higher if energy prices continue to rise, which they certainly have over the last month or two. Um, and so that, you know, that really poses quite a, a strong dilemma because you've got, you've got other aspects of, 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 I suppose, the cost of living that are increasing as well, but it's really energy which is, makes up the, a large share of that, that overall increase and is really the reason why inflation is so high at the moment. And so then that, that's, I suppose, we, what we were talking about in that as well. How, how then do you think about uh, uh, government policy response to that? And, and yeah. you, you really can't, and I suppose this is the thing, like, you know, we import energy, I mean, particularly oil and gas, we have a bit mm. from carbon or the like, but really we're a net importer of energy. So as a country, we are poorer by these price changes. We're left worse off. If you were to try and make up even the, the, the price increases that have happened today, you're talking 4 billion plus. So you, you can't compensate everyone for what's happened. And so, and, and if you did, I think there would be a risk of spurring f- f- uh, further inflation, right? If, you, if you're talking about spending that amount of additionally to just compensate people, you're, you're likely to... to Risk fueling further inflation, and that's probably not a situated place we want to be in. But if you so so instead, if you if if you then think about well, if we want to minimise those risks, but we want to help those households who are are worst impacted, then really, I suppose the welfare system or even even things like the electricity credit are n- not bad ways of of helping those households. But rather, and we should instead stay away from things like cutting indirect taxes on fuels, because really, when you cut indirect taxes on fuels. We know that you know those have been least affected. Higher income households tend to drive more; they have more cars per household. And so, if you're just cutting excise duty, if you're locking, locking five cent off excise duty, say, actually more than half of the cost of that goes towards supporting those higher income households who've been haven't been as worst affected. So, mm. I think so. We, that, that that research is really about saying, well, think carefully about how you respond to this because there's limits to what you can do. And given that you want to, and and if you want to help those who've been worst affected, really using the the, the the existing kind of tax and welfare system, the direct tax and welfare system is the way to go. Yeah, no, I think it's really, really important research, um, again, focused on, on that inequality impact. And, and of course, there are issues around that because we know we have, you know, the referred to as squeezed middle um, who are facing different costs and, you know, might necessarily be eligible for, um welfare supports, which is, I think, again, an issue of our limited welfare state and the issue of gradiating supports that would be available. And I think that that really is an issue that needs to be addressed. Um, did you look at much at how like households where the, the housing costs like rent were combining with, um, you know, energy costs in terms of pushing further into, you know, potentially pushing into poverty or how these kind of intersection of, of these because um costs are, are hitting people yeah so, so we've actually we're doing some work on that at the moment hopefully be out towards the i suppose september or so yeah. looking at that no not not so much as the this moment in time but really looking i suppose over a longer period over the last 10 15 years what accounting for those kind of costs does to our perception of income inequality because it's, it's actually a really interesting thing right i think i think often the way we discuss ireland is sometimes maybe shaped by the discussions that we hear of the us and the uk yeah yeah but but really what has happened in Ireland over the past 30 years is quite remarkable and almost unique in Europe, right? That we had 
So we had a very strong growth in household incomes, so much strong, you know, and, and, and a lot of that was catching up to the fact that we were so poor for so long yeah. that we, that, you know, it was really only when, after we joined the EU and even only a few decades after that, that we really started to grow and people's incomes started to grow mm. and that we converged towards those kind of European norms. So, right, so on a kind of an average level, that growth wasn't particularly surprising or unique. But what is really interesting, and I think, and something that we've tried to highlight in previous research is that actually, if you look at all the measures of income inequality, um, Ireland saw a reduction and quite a large reduction over time in, in you know, typically it's measured by something called the Gini coefficient, which is mm. essentially goes from zero to one. Zero is if there's perfect quality, everyone has the same. One is if um, one person has all the income. But, but what, what you see is a reduction in that uh, from about kind of 0.33 to about 0.28, which is a really big reduction. If you, like, if you look comparatively across Europe, France is the only other country to have seen a reduction in that, right? And so there's this, I think, really interesting story that we need to understand more about how did Ireland manage to achieve the levels of growth it did while it being relatively broad-based compared to other countries. You can, you can say, well, it mightn't have been as broad-based as we uh, we would have liked it to be, but the thing is, relative to other countries, it was a lot more broad-based. And I think there's 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 an interesting thing there to understand why that was, and and how like yeah, how, was that intentional? Did did we set out to achieve that, and mm. what were the policies that did achieve that, or was it just happenstance? Was it just because of changes in demographics and things like that? So, and and, and but but I think there's you know does that then withstand? I suppose is would be your question of when you account for things like housing costs and the like, right? And exactly, because I actually did research specifically yeah. on that with Task. Yeah. I wrote a report uh, in 20, you probably have read some of these or maybe not, but the 20, I wrote with a colleague of mine, the 2016 report on um, equality in Ireland, uh, economic inequality. Hmm. And, you know, kind of the analysis that, that, you know, we were developing was that, yes, you know, Ireland was more equal in terms of, you know, we were kind of mid, mid-table income inequality-wise, Gini coefficient. But when you start to account, well, you look at wealth, for example, mm. we are on the higher end of, of inequality in terms of wealth. The other thing around income was that, that you could look at, which I know you're well aware of, the pre-tax income inequality mm. level and post-tax income inequality level. And that what was happening was we were having and still do have quite a bifurcated, divided labor market between those on very high incomes often related to fine fintech and then we have the what we would call the domestic hospitality economy Mm. and that the welfare system was doing this massive role of transfer and leveling up incomes and i think in part if you look at that we did maintain a welfare system you know whereas perhaps you know the uk for example and the us obviously not having the same income but we our welfare system is almost completely income orientated. And what we don't do and didn't do was invest in things like public services, mm. housing, childcare, and these health, for example. And so these costs are much higher in Ireland. And so the Gini coefficient will say we are more income yeah. equal. But and you compare it to you know Sweden or Denmark, but actually then households in Ireland face these really high housing, health, education, childcare costs. Yeah. No, so I I I think I think there's a lot of that is is true and fair, right? So, in particular, I think you do want to account for things like housing costs. If housing costs have been so volatile, and that's again something that we're looking at at the moment, um, but also, so your 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 point in terms of the market income inequality, actually, what, what what seems to drive that, and there's been a lot of research into that in the last few years, but what drives that isn't so much the bifurcated labour market, but rather it's the fact that what we tend to have is lots of households with two earners. 
and then mm. actually quite a yeah. high share of households without any earners. And now yeah. that's that's changed over time as as you know unemployment rates has come down, but it still is is true, right? There are there 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 are a surprisingly high number of households where there's no one in paid work and we, we, you know maybe childcare is one of the reasons for this and like you know, you see it's particularly low levels of employment even com- relatively for for lone parents right um but then also we have quite a large number of single adults who report having some disability and very low rates of employment among that group as well right yeah. and so yeah. so so that i think that's maybe the more the the thing that drives the very high levels of pre tax mm. and welfare market income inequality then necessarily the the fact that we have you know google and facebook and then hotels yes, right well, that's a fair but, point absolutely and again that comes back to our income thresholds for welfare support as well the cutoffs yeah. and, and the way that we kind of i suppose segment them right we we, we have the way our welfare um system works is that we have essentially the idea that well you're out of work or you're in work when we know that the modern labor market is much more different than that we know that you know people can move from being out of work in being into part-time work and into uh, into full-time work a, a lot more right and so there, there's a need i think to modernize our our, our welfare system and how it treats people so it doesn't just mm. say you're, you're either not in work or you're you're in work and in particular if you look at single adults without kids there's very little support for those that low income for, for low, low paid workers without kids right we have working families payment for low-paid workers with kids but in lots of other countries there's an equivalent of that for for those um, um those without kids we don't have that here and that's i think quite people like nesc and um indeed some of my colleagues at the sri have been pointing that out for quite a few years that that's kind yeah. of a bit of a gap in the welfare system and then finally just on, on on the the wealth point i think so you know wealth inequality is always higher than income inequality and a lot of that has to do with age because it, it's it's you know if, if you look at people in their 20s and 30s let's do that but where i think there is an important gap in our data isn't really in kind of like the top incomes there's actually some research published again earlier this month showing that if you use kind of tax admin data to account for you know the the people who aren't necessarily captured in household surveys and so feed into the 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 income uh, the inequality statistics that doesn't make a huge difference but what we don't capture is capital income right that that's yeah. not captured very well at all and actually you know again if you I, i'm kind of always a never really forms much of the the conversation uh I, I, around these debates but there are certain forms of wealth uh, and and, in, and income sorry and income from certain forms of assets that are very favorably taxed yeah. um so if you look at some of the tax reliefs that are available in terms of you know retirement relief or entrepreneur relief or even again like from 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 I suppose a house we, there are certain types of income that we preferably tax and I, I think accounting for those and having more of a conversation around those is probably something that's going to be quite important in the coming years. Because and this is starting to happen in other places as well, right? You're, so so looking at the role of capital income and what difference that makes to those kind of perceptions of in, income inequality, I think is important. But then also thinking through to well, you know, is it right that we have the current appropriate tax treatment in place for things like that? Like should, should it be the case that from self-employment or employment you pay a higher tax rate than? disposing of a property or maybe some uh, of a business right there, there i think there's a question and maybe discussion that that can be had around absolutely. that absolutely absolutely yeah no no there is and, and wealth tax and all sorts of possibilities around that um i wanted to ask you about um <laughs> the whole question of and but we're too late i'll have to get you back another time <laughs> about the question of um not just sub- how, is there a role for controlling prices in um the economy at this point in time like in the you know, market. And I don't know if you like, you know, you think of energy price at the moment, you think of, you know, what's been charged at petrol pumps, you look at the, mm. you know, the ESB is a semi-state company, we have, you know, that there is a role, you know, board gosh, in, in, in actually 
controlling prices in the government intervening. Yeah, so I would tend to think not, that rather where the government has a role is to provide additional income to those groups who it, think, it, it thinks are worst affected and wants to kind of insulate, I suppose, from those price increases. The, the, the worry, particularly in terms of energy market, where it's an international commodity, right? There, there's, it, it's not something that we produce. It's not something we have much control over. I think there's a real risk that you kind of end up making the problem worse by trying to cap prices and that you'll end up, you know, you'll, you, you'll end up with maybe shortages in some places. So there is, you know, there, there prices do play. We know that there's price gouging or however you describe it, profit gouging. And well, on and I, I, again, like every, every country is seeing these price increases, right? And I, I, I don't think it's actually clear that the bulk of the rise in price uh, in prices is anything really to do with with, with what with, with that, right? It is about yeah. fundamentally oil has got more expensive and petrol has got more expensive and right and, and gas got more expensive because But even if it's part it, it just it is that yeah it, it it's hard for people it's hard for people you know to be seeing the the price rises and they know of course yes oil there are real reasons why you know the the increase has happened and but the profit taking the increased profit taking as well they know it's happening and it's not just in the pumps it's hotels it's it's rent it's you know it's it's mm. everywhere and and that is a real it's really hard for people, you know. It, it is, but but again, I think I think fundamentally that's treating the symptom and not the cause, right? These prices are going up because there's something, you know, there is a shortage of gas because you know, Russia are are uh, stopping as much being imported across, and there's the the, mm. the invasion of Ukraine. In terms of housing, prices are going up because we don't have enough of it. So 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 fundamentally, I, I you know, and and this is just fundamentally the economist to me. I don't think it's I don't think it works to address that symptom rather than fundamentally the underlying cause, which is to in the case of housing provide much more housing and, and much again much of that social traditional social housing or cost rental right it, it's fundamental like if we, if we just look at the prices and say oh well if we just cap them or if we just stop them being increased by as much I, do, I don't think fundamentally you're dealing with the cause of the of the of the issue you're you're just masking over it and I don't think you can mask over it for long yeah well listen Barra I think we will uh, <laughs> agree to disagree on that, <laughs> on that one, one. <laughs> but I, I think there's uh, you know there, there's a lot there that I know our listeners will get a huge amount out of and I really really appreciate you given the time because you've had a, a mad busy week of it um, so I really appreciate you coming on today and chatting no, about it th- thanks for having me on no great listen Barra Roundtree from the SRI there uh, really really interesting conversation and I know as I said loads of you will get a whole pile out of that there's a lot to think about and hopefully uh, Barra will come back again um, because there's, there's, those issues are really going to be, um, I know they're hitting people really, really hard right now. And I know there's a lot of people really suffering. Um, and in some ways, you know, it, it feels so frustrating. I know as well for people who want to help and want to try do things and change this. Um, but I think we need to keep putting forward solutions. That's what this is about. Um, and showing that there are things that can be done. And again, it's about making long-term decisions, not short-term uh, reactions and you know and, and the housing is always the best example of this if we had been building social and affordable housing over the last decade and le- in the last 20 years we wouldn't be anywhere in the situation that we're in right now in terms of the rental crisis so i think that's a key policy learning that we have to push but listen listeners thank you so much for all the patrons out there who support us to keep going um if you can go over to um patreon.com forward slash tortoise track sign up help us to keep going we're independent media um, and as always, they say, this is a, a movement and education. So please share around the podcast if you can. Let people know you're listening to them. Share them on social media um, and send us on your views. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll talk to you all soon. <laughs>